Hi, everyone. I'm Alicia Swamy. I'm here with my co-host, Eric Johnson, Keely Severson. We are exposing mold. Today, we have a mold veteran doctor, Dr. Andrew Campbell. He is back on the show for a second time. Thank you so much for joining us again today. Thank you for having me. My Michael lab, which is your lab, and they do both IgG and Ig antibody testing on blood serum. Sounds like you guys have actually a new blood test and you guys are testing for 12 different mycotoxins, molds, and sounds like that's really awesome. And I'm glad you're you're doing that to improve the testing in the mold community. But we really would love to discuss a recent presentation that you had on your site where you talk about some interesting things. Now, you challenge a lot of assumptions that exist in mold groups today. You And you specifically said, quit listening to internet mold experts because they have no research to substantiate their claims, which we definitely agree with. Now, we'd love to start with Shoemaker's HLA-DR genetic susceptibility concept. Now, we know that he is a decorated mold doctor. So what do you think about this idea? Has this been proven? Inquiring minds want to know. Yeah, first of all, it's not my lab. It's I'm just their medical advisor, and I'm I'm not the owner or whatever. Anyway, the HLA-DR is a genetic test that is very useful in one situation, one medical diagnosis. It's known as APBA, and what that APBA stands for is allergic bronchopulmonary aspergillosis, and this is, occurs in people with what is a disease known as cystic fibrosis of the lung. So, and these people sometimes when, when they don't progress or they don't, the treatment isn't working, they'll do an HLA-DR test. There are in the medical literature, the, for instance, the National Library of Medicine, better known as pubmed.gov, that's available to anyone with a computer anywhere in the world has well over 35 million publications. These are peer-reviewed studies in medical journals. There isn't a single study that links HLA, DR, anything or any HLA to any molds or any mycotoxins. There are no studies. So that is basically an invention. The other part that's important to remember is that according to Shoemaker and his followers, this affects a good chunk of the population. 25% of the U.S. population has this. Well, if you take the population of the United States and take 25%, that's 82 million Americans have this genetic defect. Well, let's, where they got that number from, it doesn't exist. Secondly, think of another disease, and this one affects 32 million Americans, 50 million less but everybody's heard about it. It's called diabetes. So there's diabetes is effect, affects 32 million Americans, but no one's heard of. There's no studies. There's no nothing on this other shoemaker theory that has 82 million Americans being affected. And the NIH is not putting up grants for it. And again, it doesn't. Ex it's not taught in any medical school, whereas diabetes is taught everywhere nursing school, you know, a naturopathic school, et cetera, et cetera. Diet, dietitians, nutritionists all know about diabetes. There's not anything, not one study on HLA, DR, and mold or mycotoxins. So it's, uh, it's, it's another one of these fake stories. Well, Dr. Shoemaker's books, he talks about how one doctor can put something in a medical chart 
it gets repeated by another doctor and then accepted as fact, passed on and entered into your permanent record without ever being validated. And he says, you should never rely on assumptions. You have to check. And he calls that ass squared medicine, the blind repetition that gives the appearance of validation when it wasn't and tells people specifically to avoid practicing ass squared medicine. And yet when people repeat a a theory without any attempt to substantiate it, that's exactly what they're doing. Precisely. That's a very good way of putting it. And also remember that if a person writes a book, let's say that the three of us decide to write a book on mold and we all participate in writing it and we all put it up on sale on Amazon and so on and so forth. It's just our opinions. Unless it goes through a process where it's checked for verification of facts and that you can verify those facts in previous publications, then it's valid. But when it's just relies on what you write as a person, and everyone has the right to their opinion. We saw that in the last presidential elections, and we're probably going to see it soon again. But anyway, that's just an opinion. It doesn't make it truth. And the point is, authority is not the truth. Truth is the authority. Absolutely. Well, as we see by the recent not-too-distant past, debacle of ulcers, H. pylori, Dr. Barry Marshall, Robin Warren and Barry Marshall, who brought something new to the medical literature that was completely overlooked for 100 years, the finding that ulcers are actually caused by a bacteria. And somehow this managed to be (laughs) overlooked and suppressed. We, We can see that it's very possible that things can be overlooked in plain sight simply because it wasn't previously known. So I don't want to squash any doctor like Dr. Shoemaker for coming up with an innovative novel concept. But at the same time, where's the uh, verifiability? Where, where are the doctors that are looking into this going, okay, let's test it before we repeat it? Yes, you're absolutely correct. And a colleague that has passed on since, Dr. William Ray, who was the father of multiple chemical sensitivity, he told me the most important thing is if it's repeatable, reproducible, one, and verifiable, two. And unfortunately, in all those tests that are recommended by, and done frequently on, on unsuspecting public is that they do these tests with no evidence, no reproducibility, nothing to back it up. I get about five to 10 emails a day because of my publications. I've got over 100 studies that I've published. And then I've also got chapters in medical textbooks, et cetera. So I get a lot of emails. Uh, five to 10, seven days a week, 365 days a year, are people who did the Shoemaker, Nathan type treatment with binders, et cetera, for two years, three years, four years, five years, and have followed that and are still sick. And I talk, and they read how I say it takes six months to get over this when it's treated correctly, diagnosed, first diagnose it correctly, then treat it correctly. Makes sense. And then you, you, you treat it, and six months later, that person is fine. Here's these people, and they tell on mast cell activation syndrome, which is part also of the stimulation by mycotoxins, takes six months to get over that. There's people on the internet who have M- 
mast cell activation syndrome summits, and they're saying three, four years. Well, I've never had a patient that took that long for anything. I mean, if you're if you a, a broken bone can heal in six weeks, okay. And now I know these are toxins; they're they're not good for you, but still, it shouldn't take that long. And there's claims of different binders being specially tested and effective for different mycotoxins. And where did that come from? And who's who's validating it? Okay, well, there are studies that have been done in sheep, in rabbits, in piglets, in chickens, and various other animals in a laboratory. So it's under very strict conditions. And it helped certain type, different types helped in binders in those animals. But those are animals. They're not humans. There's one study in humans, and it's from Denmark, and it's a study that showed the only mycotoxin that is can be helped by taking binder is aflatoxin, but it's rare. All the other mycotoxins are not affected, are, are not bound by binders. Not only that, but binders also bind micro and macronutrients, which is not good for the patients. Now, I've had doctors argue with me that say, well, it depends on, you have to give it at the right time of the day, et cetera, et cetera. Is there any study that shows that if you take this two hours after you ate, and it's going to, and then in two hours later, it's going to be out? No, there isn't a single study that says, in a if for use this binder and give this amount of of this binder at this time of the day and give it for this a long time no there's none so it's like me saying or the three of us coming out and saying i've got this real good product we have many people who lose their hair from my mold and microtoxins we have shown that uncle ralph took this and put it on his scalp and all his hair grew back and you can buy it from us in this bottle for $80 a vial, and we'll send it to you FedEx. Well, where's the evidence? Where's the proof? So you're taking the public, which is desperate for help. They don't feel good. They're sick. They're in a brain fog. And they've, and that, and they've spent money on testing their house, or maybe they have to move, and that's an economic burden. And then to do all these tests that are absolutely have no validity, that's sad. And that's what patients write to me. And clinicians as well. They say, it's ridiculous. Since I've been watching your webinars, et cetera, I've seen this many patients did it and it worked. I don't understand why so many people are following all this other stuff. Yeah. And when the objection is brought up about binders depriving people of micronutrients, they say, well, you take them at different times of the day. You eat it in one time, you take the binder at a different time and that, that solves that problem. And you say it does not. And I say, Definitely does not. Number one, how long does the binder bind? How long does it stay in the gut and bind? One hour, two hours, four hours, six hours? How long? Can you show me anything that tells in humans this is how long? And excuse me, but I think that if you give it to a 20 year old, their digestive system may be different than that of a 40 year old or a 60 year old. And the gut motility is affected by mycotoxins. They're not taking any of that into account. Okay, and moving right along, what about Marcons and Beg spray? Okay, Marcons doesn't exist in medicine. It's there's nothing. I mean, it's an invention. There's no 
There, I even sent, there is a laboratory that says we test for Marcons. I emailed them, send me the studies you have on Marcons. What they sent me was a list of lectures given at various to various groups by Dr. Schumacher. Well, I'm sorry, that's not evidence of a disease. That's just some guy talking to a group of people about something that he invented. Well, that's nice, but it's just an invention. It's not a real disease. What was the second one? Beg spray. The idea that you can cure this Marcon's by spraying the stuff up your nose. Okay, so there's a disease that doesn't exist <laughs> taken care of by this spray that kills stuff that doesn't exist. Okay, that, now talking about spraying things, Dr. Ponikow, chairman of the Department of Ear, Nose, and Throat Surgery at the Mayo Clinic, published a study on 210 patients who had chronic sinus problems. He took all of them, took them to the OR, removed everything from their sinuses and sent it to the lab for, you know, to see what it is. 96% was mold. So in 210 patients, he actually suggested we change the term in medicine from chronic sinusitis to chronic fungal sinusitis, which would make sense. The point there is that he recommended that all patients use that the way he treated it and it worked was using amphotericin B nasal spray twice a day and oral Spornox 100 milligrams twice a day. And this is a published study. Now, just to let you know, that, publi that published study was done in 1999, 24 years ago. So this is not new. There's nothing in Marcon's and no spray. The only spray is the ones that has been published and shown. And by the way, Dr. Ponikow's study has since then been repeated by other university medical centers and found to be absolutely correct. Wow. So I remember in the days prior to the internet, there, people had a completely different attitude. They subscribed to, well, snail mail groups, and there was generally an accepted central authority, and information was disseminated through newsletters. And people had to stop and take time about what they wrote down. There wasn't this instant gratification about writing something out, putting up a blog, flashing it all over the internet, and influencing a lot of people. And it looks like the warnings that we saw about how internet experts were going to completely alter the medical landscape, they've proven to be correct. Yes, yes. So as you see, if you go to Dr. Google, and you look up all these websites, each person giving his own opinion, a lot of those people have the term doctor in front of their name. But where did they actually become a doctor? Or is that they, they went to, they took a summit and did it, got a certificate, and that allows them to call themselves doctor in something. So you have to take all those things into consideration. <clears throat> but again, the public is desperate for information, for help. I'm sick. I can't work. I, by the way, yesterday I spoke to somebody who said he figured out what this Silicon Valley bank, why it went bad. And I said, how? He says, well, the building has mold in it. And the people that work in that building work for the Federal Reserve. And that's why the banking. Well, that would make sense. They're all brain fog. They can't add two things to save their life. Yes. So re re returning to the point you made, wrong does not cease to be wrong because the majority share in it. 
Leo well, Tolstoy said that. Ah, well, speaking of the majority, we've got a plethora of mold summits, mold master classes, mold experts, mold health coaches. I mean, they are all they're out in full force now. And many of them, if not all, got a lot of their basic concepts from Dr. Shoemaker and they're repeating it. And they're unstoppable. Unfortunately, that's very true. And I attended a conference. And I actually attended and spoke at a conference in California. And that was approximately 80% of the attendees, 80% were uh, naturopaths and about 20% were a variety of medical MDs, DOs, and chiropractors, et cetera. And I had one person come and ask me a question afterwards. Usually, when I walk out of the room, there's a I feel sometimes like Moses because everybody follows me out. But this, there was only one person who asked me a question. It was a naturopath who argued against me about everything that I had said. And now when I do a presentation at a medical conference, I give it with quotations and with citations, bibliography, et cetera, from the medical science. And her answer to me was, well, medical science doesn't really prove anything. Because people can get well from various things. I said, you're absolutely correct, young lady. You're absolutely correct. As a matter of fact, I read that you can lose, because she was a little chubby. I said, you can lose fat if you rub walnut oil on your abdomen twice a day. I said, do you believe that? Because I don't know. I said, okay. Then we are now talking at the same level you're talking at. Well, it's really irritating when people use science never conclusively proves anything as an end stop to a conversation. It's basically there just to stop what you're talking about. Exactly. And, you know, okay, let's pretend that science and medicine doesn't matter. I've treated over 15,000 patients successfully. I have boxes and boxes of cards and letters I've received from patients. I've treated people of all walks of life. Many times I've had to pay for their tests, their medication, et cetera, because they were devastated. They lived in a trailer that was moldy. They had no more money left because neither one could work because they were so affected by molds and mycotoxins. What do you do with those people? You've got to help them. And I did. I did what I could. The point being is that I have the evidence of 15,000 people that have gotten well. And not only that, but I've published the data on those 15,000 people. How they, what, what tests did I do? What treatments did I do? And I don't have publications only with my name on it. These are publications with other doctors at other medical centers along with mine. So these folks that want to just absolutely, they're so tied to that shoemaker method, they can't see beyond it. Well, my story is in four of Dr. Shoemaker's books. <laughs> so. I was very supportive of him for a long time, and he was supportive of my ideas. And things have really gotten out of control where he's pivoted on some of his basic assertions, and it's creating massive confusion, not just in the United States, but in Australia, where SIRS was promoted heavily, and nearly all of their experts, their foundation started with Shoemaker and nowhere else. Right. He knows how to promote himself on the on the internet. I remember three years ago, a doctor saying, did you know that Dr. Shoemaker gave a course here 
for one day in Los Angeles and charged $5,000. Well, and he called me because I've never charged to speak. And he was astounded that someone to help understand a disease would ever charge and such a large amount. So the point being about all this and Australia and the confusion that it makes, that it creates, is back to the medical evidence. Like that old ad, show me the beef. Yeah. The, show me the beef. Show me that what you say, like the VCS test, you know, this visual test, non-refundable, by the way, and you can do it from your, your laptop or your computer. And it's, he thinks that he has to constantly find new ways to make money. You have to understand that. And the bottom line is always follow the money. So the point is, is that he's got this VC. There's nothing that says anywhere that that is a valid test or to test for mold or mycotoxins or anything to do with indoor air quality. Nothing. So well, it, it's just a, a lot of these sham tests. And like the other tests that he promotes, blood tests that are immune markers, they're general immune markers of inflammation. So for instance, those immune markers for inflammation if you went bowling yesterday and today and you hadn't bowled in years or you went to play tennis and you hadn't played tennis all year and you're going to have a so a, a shoulder that's kind of sore and an elbow and a wrist that's kind of sore well the inflammatory markers in your blood are going to be elevated no he says this is only elevated in mold well i'm so sorry there's a lot of if you've got a a a stomach bug it's going to be elevated these are immune markers. I'm an immunologist and a toxicologist. I know what they are. But he beguiles people to believe what he says is right, just like the HLA-DR test. And people do and listen to it, listen to him, and doctors order it because they think it's right. But they don't look things up. Well, the people are using the ERMI test as a diagnostic. They know they're not supposed to, that this was developed by the EPA as an experimental tool. And yet they go ahead and act like this is telling you something reliable and definitive about your illness. Yes. And if you read what the EPA says about it and said about it 10 years ago, 2013, the public may be using a test that should not be used. It was an experimental test that failed. And it, I put it in many of my lectures that I give in my webinars, I should say, and many of the lectures I give to, and people go, what? I've done three earners on my house because I got this and this number. Well, you're not supposed to be using it. And that announcement went out 10 years ago. It's not a new announcement. Well, when Dr. Shoemaker developed or started employing this genie test, he said the proteomic results from this sophisticated transcriptomic marker of expression isn't validating mycotoxins at all. In fact, it's working against it. It's disproving them. He says less than 7% of the gene activations that show up on Genie are from mycotoxins, with the vast majority being from a bacteria, actinomycetes. That's his new theory. Again, it's another one. He needs to constantly come up with something new to make money. You have to well, understand. I understand that he's working on the equivalent of an ERMI test, but this time directed at various species of actinomycetes. Yeah, but it's not. It, show me the beef. Well, what I'd like to see is that instead of these things being repeated endlessly on the internet, where a lot of health coaches jump in to sell this and make money and basically rip people off by defrauding them 
of valid information, I'd like to see institutes, especially the CDC and NIH, check into some of this stuff. Well, the point is, is that regardless of what we believe should be right, again, they're not, they're, oh, CDC, I don't trust the CDC. I don't trust that government. I trust Dr. Shoemaker. <laughs> but unfortunately, again, people are desperate. They want help, and it seems to them that he makes it sounds really good. He's, he, he's a great salesperson. He's good at salesmanship and selling new things that don't work, that have no validity, that have no basis in medical science. And doctors, and I'm, I'm not the only one, believe me, there's a lot of doctors who know this. They don't follow his method, and they know it's, it, it's quack medicine. So at Exposing Mold, we're trying to figure out ways to restore science to the methodology, put some common sense and logic back into this debate. Yes, exactly. exactly. Well, I have great reason not to trust the Center for Disease Control because I was, as told in Dr. Shoemaker's books, I was at the very core of the creation of chronic fatigue syndrome, and I saw how they behaved. I remember you from those days, but believe me, your hair has changed. <laughs> yes, it has, but I've still got it. <laughs> yeah, poor Dr. Komarov, he's uh, kind of changed his appearance along the way, but he's still in the game. And during the 86 investigation, as seen on my poster here, Dr. Cheney, Dr. Peterson, Dr. Komarov were completely baffled by the sick buildings. Toxic mold was not in the medical literature at this time. So when they saw the influence of the sick buildings on people with the mystery disease, with the mystery vi virus, they looked in the literature and saw nothing except mold as an allergy, and they dropped it at that point. And that investigation has never been picked up again. Right. I can tell you that, again, something you may or may not know, but I'm the editor-in-chief for four medical journals. And as a result, I get to read a lot of things, et cetera. There are actually studies that were published in the late 80s, mid to late 80s, that discuss mold spores being inflammatory and mycotoxins coming from mold spores. It wasn't a big, this is, and I know that, and for example, in 2003, the New England Journal of Medicine published a study on sick building syndrome and said that there's, said that there's between 800 and 1 million buildings in the United States that are sick buildings. That was in that's 20 years ago. And that's the New England Journal of Medicine. So I, I remember Dr. Cum and a, a lot of, well, I remember all those doctors that were involved, Paul Cheney, et cetera, et cetera, that you probably know much more about than I do. And I've even got some of their publications here on my shelf. The, the, but you're right in that there's a lot of people that miss something. But thankfully, now we have the internet Thankfully or not, and not thankfully, we have the internet because it's used by those who want to do sham things and get, make money out of it to an unsuspecting public, as is being done with molds and microtoxins. And then there's the other issue of it's great that you can look things up pretty quickly. And remember what Abraham, President Abraham Lincoln once said long ago. He said, don't trust everything you read on the internet. <laughs> Absolutely. I remember that. Good old honest Abe. So to me, 
the toxic mold at Ground Zero for Chronic Fatigue Syndrome has been symbolic of a corrupt medical system. Because regardless of whether it's valid or not, the fact that nobody has read about it and come back to find out the truth of the matter is representative of a system that has no self-correction whatsoever. Yes. Well, we've spoken a lot about Schumacher, but what about the labs that do these tests? What about doing a, making money off doing a Marcon's test? What about do, making money off a test that is called OAT, O-A-T, organic acid test? Organic acids are used in neonatology, in newborn that are born with a genetic defect for metabolism. And that's where organic acid test is used. There is no evidence whatsoever anywhere in the literature that you can actually, as organic acids have any kind of link to molds. Wow. So I don't have a lab in my back pocket. You know, I'm just somebody who is in the middle of this incredible controversy. And what I see is there's a failure to verify, a lack of interest in getting the facts. And now when I go to chronic fatigue syndrome, MECFS institutes and complain about this, they say that doesn't matter because we've redefined chronic fatigue syndrome since then. Well, if you remember, it was also known as chronic fatigue and immune dysfunction syndrome. Remember that, CFIDS? Absolutely. And it had a lot of different names behind it. And, you know, I remember when the first EBV test came out, et cetera. Right. The Nichols EBV serology test. Correct. Yeah. That touched off all the controversy Yep. because Dr. Cheney called the Center for Disease Control asking about a cluster. There were a couple of clusters in sick buildings. We know that all of them were in sick buildings, but the one in particular that intrigued him was an entire group of teachers in a single room. Now, how is it possible that nine out of 10 teachers in a single room got sick, but not the rest of the school? And this is the original chronic fatigue syndrome cohort, the cluster that started it all. Now, it should seem obvious to anybody who reads about the situation that there must have been something really, really bad in that room, and they would ask about it. Exactly. Exactly. I I remember Dr. Cheney, and then he moved to North Carolina. And one of the things that doesn't, I mean, it amazes me that people do a urine test for mycotoxins. So I talked to Dr. Rajdani, and I don't know if you know who Dr. Rajdani is or not. I do. Dr. Rajdani has published well over 200 studies, and he's eminent, eminent doctor especially in the realm of autoimmune disorders. But he's a great scientist at the same time, great immunologist. And he says, he told me, he says, I don't understand. What what are they thinking when they do a urine test? So one of my questions, and when there's a whole bunch of people that I'm speaking to, I said, what is the source of mycotoxins in urine? And they all stop and start thinking. And I said, well, it's, you know, it's in your body, so it goes through the, it's peed out. Well, really, and what it, can you describe the, the process, you know, that metabolic or whatever, infectious, whatever, that, can you tell me about, well, I don't really know how that really works. Okay. So I said, As, do you have any published studies? No. I said, so then my next question is, 
how come urine tests don't produce new antigens against human tissues causing autoimmunity? And they said, they don't know. And then I tell them, urine testing is great, is useful if you do it several times a day for food because you think you may have eaten food. Now, just so you understand, there's a lot of the shoemaker crowd that think it's from the gut. Well, it's been proven in published studies that it's not the gut, that the gut actually, the microbiome helps detoxify by oxidation certain mycotoxins. So it's not the gut that, where you're getting it. And they're talking about all these grains containing mycotoxins. Well, let me tell you, a study was published in July of, of 2021 showing that 92% of all cow's milk that you buy at the store in these square boxes, not square, but you know what the milk looks like, whether it's pasteurized That, or that was in the old days. <laughs> That's right. The 92% have mycotoxins and 36% have two or more mycotoxins. Milk, the stuff I use for my coffee, kids eat with cereal. And of course, then it comes into the butter, the ice cream, the cream, cheese, sour cream, etc. So why aren't we all dying? Because it's all below a certain level that's set, that's known as the total daily intake, TDI. The FDA, the EFSA, European Food Safety Authority, all have set numbers for how much is tolerated. I love peanut butter. There's mold, there's mycotoxins of peanut butter, but it's all below this total daily intake. It's parts per billion, four parts, eight parts, five parts. Now, I asked a scientist, this physics guy, I said, look, I'm a visual. I don't understand parts per billion. Can you make me see that? He said, take 100 football fields, cover them with golf balls, and take one golf ball. That's one part per billion. So that's how little, and what happens to that, it's such a small amount. And we're talking in Daltons, if you want to get into the actual molecular size. And what does the body do? It pieces it out right away. It's too small to have an effect on the body, any kind of health effect. So that's what's getting picked up in urine. The other part is, if you look at the urine test results, they all contain ochratoxin, which is a mycotoxin. Well, there are studies that show that in humans, 99.8% of ochratoxin is bound to albumin. Albumin is the number one protein in humans, in our bodies. It's bound. It cannot be excreted either actively or passively in the urine. So how can there be ochratoxin in the urine? Well, I'll tell you how. Because they don't test, the urine tests don't test for mycotoxins. They test the metabolites of mycotoxins. So that's why it's not, it's, it's a test that doesn't give you the, the real level of mycotoxin. Antibodies are the tests that people use for Epstein-Barr virus. It's an antibody test for cytomegalovirus, for HHS V6, all the herpes virus families, correct? or hepatitis. It's all an antibody test. Why? Because our hair is 100 microns thick. Mold spores are 2 to 4 microns. Mycotoxins are 0.1 microns, the same size as a virus. So you test the virus by an antibody test, don't you? 
Well, this is the same size you tested by an antibody test, okay? And it gives you a certain level, and that's a quantitative test. How much quantity is in you? Urine test just tells you what you just peed out now. And this afternoon, it may be a different number because you ate asparagus. And what happens if you have asparagus for lunch? Well, the rest of that day, you're gonna, every time you urinate, you're going to smell asparagus. That's the metabolite of asparagus you're smelling. So the test is for the metabolite. It's the same background. So you're testing for a metabolite? I'm so sorry. That's not <laughs> has nothing to do with clinical pathology of a body. Well, I love peanut butter too, and I eat it almost every day. And I've got to say that to Dr. Shoemaker's credit, he had a bunch of his SIRS volunteers pig out on peanut butter, stuff as much as they could down their gullets, and there was no rise in inflammatory markers. So he actually talked about this. He stated it on several occasions, and it had no impact on his followers. No, no, they they think he walks on water or something, you know. So, you know, kind of saying everything to back up everything you've said, there's false treatments, false tests. And it's, and this is what a patient writes me, says, these people are all making money off other people's suffering. And the health coaches and the newbie mold experts are just piggybacking off of this. And they've all jumped into the game like a bunch of greedy parasites. They're making money. They like it. I, I can tell you that non-medical people, meaning people without a medical degree or degree in osteopathy, okay, which are degrees where you get, which make you a doctor, but there are other kinds of doctors, are charging $1,000, $2,000, $1,500 for initial evaluation without tests. That's just right. their money. Yeah, I've definitely heard of them charging up to $20,000 just to walk in the door. Yep. yep. Incredible. Yeah. And there's, if you, if, let's switch a little bit and tell you about Lyme. And why am I talking about Lyme when we're talking about mold? Because Lyme testing is also affected by mycotoxins. So it's what we call in medicine cross-reactivity. So when you have a toxin, be it a mycotoxin, be it mercury, be it arsenic, be it glyphosate, all these things are not live. They don't have cell walls. They're just groups of molecules. So Lyme is a bacteria. In microbiology, we have four types. We have bacteria, viruses, parasites, and pathogenic fungi. Okay? Toxins, because of the cross-reactivity, will light up the tests for these. So if you have mycotoxins, you do a blood test for EBV, CMV, HHSV, whatever you want, etc. It'll be positive. Not because you have it, but because it cross-reacted with the toxic test with the toxin in your body. Lyme disease will light up because cross-reactivity with mycotoxins. And people get treated for the Lyme disease and they take antibiotics for a year, two years, intravenously and all kinds of things. They still feel sick. Well, it's the mycotoxins and mold. It's not the Lyme. And yeah, I've, I've seen many yeah. people show up in Dr. Peterson's Cimarron research complaining about that very thing. That's exactly how it happened. And I see... When I treat patients, and I still am treating patients, I see that all the time. I've been on this, that, and the other antibiotics. I've been treated by 
this famous doctor in New York, this famous doctor in California, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, yeah, I had six months of IVs. I said, what the heck has happened to your poor microbiome? Just wiped it off. 80% of a person's immune system is in the gut. When you wipe out that microbiome, you wipe out a whole bunch of things that your body actually needs. They are so, worse than they were before. And they paid yes. hundreds of thousands of dollars for the privilege. Right. And there was even an investigation published by Bloomberg News on this Lyme business with doctors making tens of thousands of dollars off one patient. There's a guy here in near where in, in part of Tampa, $60,000 to $100,000 per patient, Lyme treatment. So the poor unsuspecting public, and they're still sick. Yep. The point is they're yep. still sick. It'd be a different thing if it's, it took $100,000 to get me well, and I am really well, I'm happy, I, I can, but they're still sick. It's heartbreaking to see these people that left the uh, viral camp to go in explore the Lyme treatments, pay all this money, and wind up sicker than they ever were before. There's only one lab that has, in the United States, that has a patented test for Lyme, and they don't do the Western blot. Well, they do the Western blot, but they add what is called a multi-peptide test, and that's Immunosciences Laboratories in Los Angeles. That's Dr. Ari Vajdani, and his test is very accurate for Lyme. So all these people that have their tests done by all these other labs, I, I then do Dr. Vrishdani's test, which costs half as much, and show them a patented test. They don't really have Lyme, and they're shocked because they just spent all their savings for nothing, unsuspecting public. Now, I remember Dr. Vrishdani set off a firestorm years ago by discovering high rates of apoptosis in MECFS. And these people clearly have something wrong with their cells because they're dismantling themselves. And the uh, doctors immediately said, maybe we can come up with a drug to prevent apoptosis, which, of course, (laughs) yeah, I I can see you laugh because it doesn't take a few seconds to think about the consequences of what would happen if you succeeded. Sometimes I tell doctors in these conferences, I say, let me ask you something. You get a positive test. And it says positive for Babesia, Bartonella. Okay. Do you treat it? Oh, yeah. I said, did you ask the patient? Let's take Bartonella, cat scratch disease. Did they have a cat? Yeah. And he's, but they had a cat. Okay. Were there pustules where they got scratched? I don't know. I'll have to ask them. I said, well, did they have enlarged nymph nodes in the area of, of the cat scratch? Well, I didn't check. Oh, so you're you're treating a test result, not a patient? Well, as Sir William Osler said, medicine is learned by the bedside, not just in the clinic, in the lab, in medical school. One has to observe at all times. I ask these people, do you even have a stethoscope? Do you listen to people's hearts? Do you examine them? Or you just order a bunch of tests after listening to them and then treat the tests? Well, before we run out of time talking about treating just the test, I'd like to explain where chronic fatigue syndrome got off on the wrong foot instantly because Dr. Gary Holmes was baffled by the sick buildings. He found nothing in the medical literature to explain it. So he, here he's confronted with this EBV, the Nichols EBV serology test, which is very confusing. 
And he wrote in the preamble to the Holmes 1988 chronic fatigue syndrome definition that it failed to differentiate between people with the Cheney-Peterson mystery illness and healthy controls. Well, before he even left town, we saw the problem is that the healthy controls they selected were all people that were associates of the sick ones, and they were all in the sick buildings. So, of course, they had fluctuating levels of titers. Yeah, I remember that paper. It came out by Gary Holmes, 86, I think it was. 87, but yeah. I'm sorry, 87. Okay, I was close. But I remember the paper. So the preamble, the original definition, calls the Epstein-Barr virus serology test into question. Was that test abandoned? Did they stop using it? Did they change it? No, it became the gold standard. So here's a bit of confusion that arose right up front about why was this test unreliable and that they didn't go back to go, wait a minute, you selected healthy controls who are also in sick buildings. Exactly, exactly. And now there's clinics. There's one in Hawaii that treats chronic fatigue syndrome. I asked the guy, he was at a conference where I spoke too, and he spoke, and I said, do you ever try to figure out what caused the chronic fatigue? Or do you just say, oh, they have chronic, they tell you they're tired all the time. And so they have chronic fatigue syndrome. You do, you check for some, not really because they've already been checked by other doctors. Wow. Ask squared medicine. (laughs) Oh, wow. So here's, here's the problem is that chronic fatigue syndrome has become a global controversy. People are fighting bitterly all over the world, but none of them come back to check their premise to find out how the confusion arose. Right, right. I'm behind you on that. You ought to publish some of this stuff. (laughs) Well, we actually have, but we get no traction. Well, unfortunately, that's that's true because we're eclipsed by... The internet famous people, the so-called experts, because maybe they wrote a book. Yeah, a lot of people, they can't believe that such a gross error could have been made with no correction. I know. But the few that do, the few that looked into this sufficiently to see that there was a, a problem and it touched off confusion that has never, never been addressed. Well, their answer is we redefined CFS since then. So that doesn't matter anymore. They're simply compounding their mistakes. Go away. Go away. (laughs) Don't ask more questions. Now, Alicia is pretty unique in the regards of research because she actually came back to ground zero to the very building that set off this entire controversy and asked the right questions. So from the point of view of being a valid researcher, a chronic fatigue syndrome researcher, I would say that Alicia outranks all the chronic fatigue syndrome researchers of the world. Bravo for doing that. That was <laughs> That was really smart thinking. Yeah, you know, and that's really the goal of exposing mold is to for us to raise enough money so that we can validate a lot of this stuff and do some research. And you know, we've been in contact with certain researchers that are pretty popular in the CFS realm, and it's just like, well, you know, they want us to give them a, a price. You know, they they. If they're the money is there, then they're there to help. If there's no money, then they're not interested. And I really wish that people wouldn't focus so much on the money. But I mean, I get it that that's what makes the world go round and uh, people have lives. So in a sense that, you know, we also have to play the game. And I think we struggle with that balance of 
of helping people playing the game and like getting the research out. Like we, we want to do all these things. And so we're, we're really trying to do our best to, to put one for one foot forward in front of the other to, to make progress and, and keep pushing. And just like you, you know, I'm, I'm sure you have dedicated a lot of your own funds to your publications and that's sort of where we're, we're trying to go as well. So we'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsors. Home Cleanse, formerly known as All American Restoration, is a company that specializes in improving indoor air quality through proper mold remediation, offering services nationwide. You can visit them at homecleanse.com to learn more. The Mold Guy performs mold sampling and testing for homeowners, renters, and businesses. Please visit themoldguyinc.com to learn more. Black Diamond Services provides solutions to the unforeseen challenges that can affect homes and families with no out-of-pocket costs. Services include temporary housing relocation and mold test referrals for homeowners. Visit blackdiamondservices.com to learn more. Thank you again for your sponsorships. It is integral to our ability to serve our community and to improve the quality of life for all. We've mentioned autism as being a caused by molds and mycotoxins. And there are studies that have come out mainly from the Boston area, from Harvard and Tufts University School of Medicine, showing that learning disabilities, behavioral abnormalities, ADD, ADHD, and autism can be caused 66% by exposure to molds and mycotoxins. And I've spoken to teachers and I'm talking about elementary school teachers. And one of them I have to disclose was my brother who teaches elementary school in Austin, Texas. But there's another four that I spoke to throughout the country. And I asked them in their experience, have they seen an in- a change in the amount of kids with either behavioral problems or learning disabilities, et cetera, et cetera, over the last 20 years or so? And they all say, it's absolutely, it's completely different like it was 20 years ago. There's a lot more problems with these children. And we know that autism comes from mycotoxins. I can tell you personally that I've treated, I don't know how many autistic kids. And believe it or not, many of them are from doctors because they've read my publications and they bring their 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 son or daughter to me to be treated. You treat them for mycotoxins, their autism goes away. You treat kids for ADD, ADHD, you test them for, and do the antibody testing for mycotoxins, they get well. They don't have to take, you know, these medications that alter the brain in children. You don't know by giving them those drugs for controlling them, what happens in 20 years down the road to the brain? How, how was the brain affected by that? You don't know. Well, Keely's going to be screaming when she sees this conversation because she's dealing with this problem right now at a sick school where children are going, and she's determined that this is affecting them. And what are they doing? They're offering counseling for mental health disorders. It's not going to work. There's, it's very simple. And this is what, I've, what I teach when I teach faculty at medical schools. I tell them it's a very simple principle. Identify the cause remove the cause, repair the damage, you've cured the patient. Three steps. That's what the mechanic does with a car. Maybe uh, doctors need to go to mechanic school before they get their doctorate. 
Well, but, you know, I've repeated this, I've written about it, I've published studies on, on, on this. I mean, I've published studies on autism, MS, the other one, ALS, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, studies from North Carolina, et cetera, and various other university medical centers have shown that 5 to 10% of ALS is genetic, inherited. The other, the rest is from mycotoxins. So in Alzheimer's disease, that's the brain. At autopsy, it showed, and autopsies of patients who had died and had Alzheimer, that every single part of the brain, including the cerebrospinal fluid, had mold in it. They did another study, another completely different university medical center, unrelated. They did the same, but with patients with Parkinson's who had died. Every single part of the brain, all parts, including the cerebrospinal fluid, had mold in it. So what's really interesting about MECFS is it's commonly associated with high opening pressure on lumbar taps, showing there's some kind of inflammation. Of course. <laughs> of course. So unfortunately, as of yet, they've not attempted to make any correlation between this high opening pressure, this elevated pressure, and sick building syndrome. Yeah. Well, if you connect the dots, it works. It's 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 right there in front of us. It's not that complicated. It's not some sort of mysterious process that's highly complex and very deep and profound at molecular levels. No, it's right there in front of our nose. And if you follow the dots, as we have done here with, with you, the, the, the three of us, I mean, it makes absolute, first of all, it makes common sense, which is important. The second thing, it's been shown in studies and published studies. And I'm not talking about a few studies, obscure studies that published in some journal, I don't know where or whatever. No, I'm talking about important journals and important medical centers that have published all this data. So but you mentioned not- autism with finding 66% of autistic kids having some sort of mycotoxin issue. What, what, what are you guys seeing in the other 34%? Other issues are gut issues. The other 34% have gut issues. Here is, this is from, this is an autistic children's study that I got from a university that we're going to be publishing. You wouldn't believe, unbelievable, high levels of mycotoxins. A new study has just come out about gamma delta T cells and their influence on the intestinal microbiota. No. And the other thing is, you have to understand, and this was published, my gosh, in the early 1990s, 30 years ago, Dr. Vishdani and I and a couple other doctors, we published the study on breast implants. We did 23 studies on silicone breast implants. And then they went, they asked us to come and testify at NIH. And six months later, they shut down the production of breast implants. In breast impl- and, and then they, you know, now they're back up again. And women are getting them right and left. They have mold in them. And part of the process is using platinum, part of the process. And it doesn't matter if they're saline filled or they're mold filled, inside there's mold. And regardless of whether they're saline filled, the outer shell is made with silicone. So what do you, back in the early 90s, I treated a lot of women who had breast implants, had them removed, and they still felt bad. They didn't get well. And so... I had this guy up in Canada, PhD, Dr. Pierre Blais in Montreal, who looked at 
implantable medical devices that had failed. Knee implants, hip implants, all kinds of implants, why they had failed. I invited him down and talked to him, and he he clearly said, it's because of mold. And I said, what do you mean mold inside? How did it get there? He says, during the manufacturing process. So how do you know? He says, I'll send you some pictures. He sent them to me. I, I use them. I did a webinar on, on breast implant illness and mycotoxins and molds. And I, I used some of the pictures he sent me. The implants are discolored when they're removed. Oh, they look horrible. We appreciate you so much. And I hope that you're training a line of doctors to continue on with your work, you know, so your work doesn't stop with you. And we can continue on with, with your, your level of honesty, bravery, and inquisition. Thank you so much, Dr. Campbell. Eric, was there any any last questions? Anything you want to say, Dr. Campbell, to end the oh, conversation? This is fabulous. And thank you so much for clearing up a lot of these misconceptions. And I hope we can start over and get back on the right track now. And I agree. And I want to thank both of you, not only for having me, but for the work you do in helping people wade through all the misinformation out there on chronic fatigue syndrome, sick building syndrome, molds, mycotoxins, so much misinformation, but you're the source for the real information. So congratulations to you all. All right, thank, oh, thank you so much. Your endorsement means a lot. And we really do appreciate that. I know we're not always the most favored within the mold community, but as you, you can see why <laughs> we're trying to correct a lot of the misinformation. So thanks again, Dr. Campbell. And thank you everyone for listening. Thank you so much.